The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is one that I have been looking forward to for quite a while, in part because uh, we are going to be talking about topic, a topic that is currently very hot because it's related to popular culture, and I'm speaking about the release of a new uh, Jurassic Park movie and uh, presentation. And uh, one of the issues and one of the topics that has always amused me since my uh, graduate days, as, as graduate student days as an archaeologist, is people's constant equation of dinosaurs and archaeology. And, of course, nothing could be farther away from the truth. Um, and the Jurassic Park movies uh, certainly have adopted a major place in contemporary lore. And I hope that one of the byproducts of this particular program is to dispel the notion that people and dinosaurs were in any way contemporaneous. Um, at the very least, um, people should understand that uh, the divergence between these two particular life forms uh, are separated by on the order of 60 million years. And so uh, we will discuss that and we will discuss the place of dinosaurs and their fascination for people. Uh, as this program goes along, my guest today is a Dr. Mark Lowen, who uh, has a Ph.D. in geology from the Department of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Utah. He uh, received the Outstanding Graduate Teaching Award for 2008, and he has advanced degrees from in paleontology, and that's important to note as we get into this archaeology versus uh paleontology discussion, uh, and also has a background in chemistry and physics uh, from the Uni- from Union College in, in Nebraska. He's currently an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics at uh, and Biology at the University of Utah, and he has been with 
the museum for, since uh, 2000 and has worked extensively on dinosaur and Jurassic locations uh, across, the, uh, across the western United States and also in Mexico, Madagascar, and Kenya. He served as one of the scientific consultants to the design team of, for the Past Worlds Gallery, which is uh, one of several galleries at the University of Utah Museum and has been consultant for several projects, including the film Jurassic Fight Club for the History Channel, the Cleveland Lord, Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry Visitor Center, and the Dinosaur Expo 2005 for the National Science Museum in Tokyo. Uh, thank you very much for appearing on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's talk right now about this latest project, which I guess has been a major box office hit, uh, Jurassic Park. Uh, and, and, and let's talk a little bit about, as you had indicated, what is right, what is wrong, and what are the difficulties in trying to correct certain misconceptions that may have been presented in the movies and, and some of the ones that people carry along with them when they discuss issues like dinosaurs. For example, the one I pointed up, of course, is the one where people just automatically, a lot of people, even educated people, equate uh, the emergence of humans and dinosaurs on the same timeline, which, of course, is, is uh, so demonstrably false. What are some of the other myths and, and issues that that you you could straighten out for us? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a lot there uh, to deal with. Well, why don't I just go back to the beginning and talk about how important Jurassic Park has been for paleontology in a okay. similar way to the Indiana Jones movies have been for archaeology, popularizing mm -hmm. them and revitalizing the public's interest uh, in that science. One of the interesting things that happened in paleontology is really until the 70s and 80s, we had this idea of dinosaurs as these slow, sluggish, extinct, not very dynamic animals. And it was a paper that came out in 1969 on a raptor-like dinosaur called Deinonychus that first gave us the idea that dinosaurs probably gave rise to birds. And so from 69 on into the 80s, we started getting this idea of dinosaurs being the ancestors to birds. Now, it, it wasn't a solved, um, conclusive deal back then, but as research went on, we started to learn more and more that dinosaurs were more dynamic. They laid eggs. They actually took care of their babies in their nests, at least some species did. And uh -huh. so we started to get this idea of dinosaurs being a little bit faster, and certainly the meat-eating dinosaurs, and specifically the animals like Velociraptor, those were looking like the real ancestors or closely related to birds. Then in the late 90s, you know, after Jurassic Park came out and the huge renaissance of interest in paleontology that was associated with that, we actually learned conclusively that many meat-eating dinosaurs had feathers. And now we have the potential for almost any kind of dinosaur to have some sort of feathery integument. Not all of them did, but some of them did. 
And so now 99.9% of paleontologists are absolutely convinced by the evidence that dinosaurs are still alive and around us today as birds. So what happened was most of the dinosaurs, except for a few small groups of birds, went extinct. Many birds went extinct at the end of the time of the dinosaurs, along with the things that we think of as dinosaurs like Brachiosaurus and T-Rex. But those few species of small flying dinosaurs actually made it through and now have diversified into the thousands of species of birds that we have today. So while we don't want people to think that people lived alongside the dinosaurs, at the same time, we try to teach the public that, yes, dinosaurs are still alive alongside of us today as the birds. If you want to know what a dinosaur is like, go outside and look at the birds around you today. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the myths I, I'm sure that people are really not aware of. Um, what else? So specifically with the movies, when you go back to the first movie, you know the basic premise is you went up and you dug up amber. Inside those amber, uh, which is fossilized tree sap, you have insects, including mosquitoes. And so they would drill into the amber, the fossilized tree sap, into the stomach of the mosquito to get blood that ostensibly was from a dinosaur. And then they would clone that using techniques like PCR to amplify the amount of DNA and things like that. And they spliced in some frog DNA. And then eventually they got dinosaurs. And fortunately, the 26 species of dinosaurs they got were all dinosaurs that are well-known to science. At the same time, we recognize that we probably only understand 2% of the dinosaurs that ever lived during the Mesozoic. So the chances of actually finding named dinosaurs is very low. In addition, if you were going to splice in DNA into a dinosaur, you would use either crocodile or bird DNA, because crocodiles are the direct ancestors to dinosaurs, birds are the direct descendants, you probably wouldn't be better off to use a frog like they did in the movie. And, of course, that comes back into the plot lines, so on and so forth. But then you get these small dinosaurs, and you put them onto an island in Costa Rica. You know, the films are actually filmed in Hawaii, but you're taking these animals out of the Mesozoic and dropping them into a Cenozoic world in which there are plants that they never met. In the first movie, you see Brachiosaurus rearing up on its hind limbs, eating out of a eucalyptus tree. Eucalyptus leaves are poison to most things. I mean, that's how we get Vic's maple rug. Pretty much (laughs) koalas are the only thing that are adapted to eat it. And a dinosaur is certainly going to get sick or probably not even know how to eat those leaves. So uh, I think one of the more interesting issues about that, since you're raising this entire question about rectifying some conceptions and preconceptions, why don't you tell us a little bit about paleontology generally and about the history of dinosaur exploration? There's a a very good series of exhibits at uh, here where we are in New York at the Museum of Natural History because they sponsored a number of the very earlier, uh, some of the late earlier 20th century and even 19th century excavations. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background on paleontological exploration and some of the earliest dinosaur finds? 
Yeah, so, so that's actually an interesting story. Um, it has a deep, rich history, and yet a very shallow uh, recent history as well. Uh, so the first paleontologists who actually recognized dinosaur bones were the Chinese. And that's definitely where dragon myths have come from, both you know, in the East and the West. Um, so, you know, we, we can date Chinese apothecaries to recognizing dragon bones, uh, which actually are dinosaurs, to about 3,000 years BCE. Then right. at 100, 100 BC, um, you know, there are legendary creatures which are known to have lived in the Altai Mountains between China and Mongolia. Right. And the legendary creatures are the griffin and dragons and worms. And actually, if you superimpose a griffin on a protoceratops, which is a relative of triceratops, you easily can see uh, the origin of some of those myths. Even here in the United States, uh, in southern Utah, we have 1,600-year-old um, pictographs. So a pictograph is different from a petroglyph. A petroglyph is actually packed into the rock. A pictograph is a painting on the rock using iron oxide and other different pigments. But these mm -hmm. pictographs have beautiful pictures of thunderbirds. And next to those thunderbirds, there are trackways. And then right underneath the track panel is a physical trackway of a meat-eating dinosaur from the early Jurassic. So those Fremont Native Americans actually looked at the tracks, interpreted them right above as thunderbirds. So they got it right. They were birds. They were giant birds, mythical. So, you know, people were actually understanding, you know, early people were understanding that these things were giant creatures. And having seen Jurassic Park, you know, for a person 3,000 years ago, they would recognize those animals as the ones who made those bones. Then in Western science, you know, we actually go to really to 1676 around was the first recognized dinosaur bone. And it was actually scientifically named as scrotum humanum hmm. because it was the end of a femur of a meat-eating dinosaur that had a resemblance to a giant's testicles. And so that, that's what uh, the clergyman actually named it. Later in 1824, we actually recognized that that was the femur of a meat-eating dinosaur that looked a lot like Allosaurus or T-Rex, uh, and that animal is called Megalosaurus. And really, since 1824, we've just been building our knowledge um, a lot of work was done in the late 1800s here in North America where some of the first giant dinosaurs like Allosaurus, Triceratops, Brachiosaurus, Apatosaurus, those animals were discovered. And then really in the first uh, 30 years of the 20th century, a lot of the animals like T-Rex and things like that were found. And one of the janitors at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, he actually got enough people to donate to send him on an expedition to look for early humans in Asia. Um, 
and this was during, you know, the 20s and 30s. And these, his expedition was a total failure because they didn't find hominid fossils at all. But right. instead, in Mongolia, they found amazing dinosaur fossils, including eggs um, and animals like Velociraptor and Velociraptor itself. And this janitor's name was Roy Chapman Andrews. And if you actually look at pictures of him, you will understand how um, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg really used him as the character study for Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is kind of an amalgamation of three scientists from the turn of the century. Roy Chapman Andrews, this janitor from the American Museum, is probably the person that you would recognize as being the external look of Indiana Jones, down to the hat, you know, carrying a gun everywhere he went, leather jackets, things like that. And then Colonel Percy uh, Fawcett and an Italian paleontologist are actually more of, or an Italian archaeologist are actually more of the character studies for what Indiana Jones actually did. But there's definitely a tie between the paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews and the look for Indiana Jones. And we will explore these questions and several others, especially looking at the linkage between Indiana Jones, paleontology, archaeology, and uh, the fascination of this newest release, uh, the Jurassic Park film. And we will do this after we come back in a few, in a minute or so. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Lots of people talk about publishing their work, but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print. And that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune in to the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a very fascinating segment of uh, Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest is Dr. Mark Lowen, who is at the University of Utah and is a paleontologist and has uh, started to enlighten us on some of the uh, myths versus the realities, if you will, of uh, paleontology and uh, the release of the movie Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. I have not seen the movie. Have you seen it? I have. And and I must say that it's, it's a nice reset to the franchise. Uh, the first movie, Jurassic Park, in 94, was just an amazing movie. You know, it brought dinosaurs alive and into, you know, our theaters and later our living rooms for the first time ever. I mean, it was the first time really we got beyond the stop motion claymation dinosaurs uh, right. that have been depicted previously. So it was a real groundbreaking event. The next movie was good as well, uh, The Lost World. The third movie, Jurassic Park 3, uh, it was pretty much universally panned. Because, and, but now, why was it bad? Um, not a very good plot line, um, uh-huh. and honestly, a little bit of weak acting. Okay, um, I've only seen it three times versus probably <laughs> fifty for Jurassic okay. Park. All right, but um, and then then we've had the hiatus since Jurassic Park three came out, and. I know in talking to my colleagues, including uh, Jack, Jack Horner, a paleontologist at Montana State Montana, University. Montana, yeah. Yeah, he's a famous guy. Um, who who actually is, is a consultant on the movie. And even four years ago, you know, we were talking about uh, this Jurassic Park 4 movie coming out. And some of the early scripts... Uh, were rejected, and so once they finally got a script and made the movie, I was definitely interested to see how it would turn out. And I, I must say that it, it's much like the first movie, and in addition to that, it pays a lot of homage to things that happened in the series. So it's a nice reboot. We get, you know, new blood in the acting department. You know, Chris Pratt is awesome. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting movie, and the acting's good, and it's funny. Um, we we switch from the hero being a paleontologist to really the hero being a horse whisperer or a zookeeper. So I know zookeepers around the country are pretty excited about the character that Chris Pratt plays in the movie. Um, of course, some of the things that he was doing, you know, with... He actually starts training the raptors and interacting with them in a horse whisper sort of way, uh-huh. and that's you know okay. Yeah, that's you know, great. one one of um, the issues that that I think you and I probably would would have some fun bandying about is uh, this entire question as to how the scientific community views these movies. I remember, I'm older, I suspect, than you are. 
Um, but I do remember when the Indiana Jones movie came out, there was uh, some uh, sort of an almost uh, stunning response on the part of the archaeological community. Uh, they, they, they were sort of dismayed by some of the myth versus the reality, the depictions of Indiana Jones, for example, as a swashbuckling young man who ran around the country with a, a bullwhip and, and uh, tamed snakes and ran from these amazing locations to amazing locations, doing things that, quite frankly, archaeologists don't do. And they were sort of stunned by it. Many of the old guard were offended by it. And the younger people, I think the younger professionals in the field say, you know what? Archaeology has often be, been depicted as a very boring, dull operation. Um, a lot of archaeologists, quite frankly, are boring and deal with very, very specific rigors of science, which are not always fascinating and they not, are not as depicted on, on screen. And the response by, on the part of the young people was, you know what, we have to get archaeology on the map. Uh, it is. It does have exciting components to it. The entire question of discovery is a great thing. <clears throat> and whether or not you mess around with the facts, you put in a little fiction, you put a little dressing on the storyline... It brings it out in the open to the point where archaeology gets considered seriously. And then all of a sudden, other things happen, like you get more funding, more interest. At that time, there was a, a call for preser a preservation ethic. And Harrison Ford, who was the original Indiana Jones in the movie, got on public television and said, you know, you can't do archaeology in your own backyard. You have to be aware of the fact that there are laws governing it. And, and, and it just sprouted all these tentacles that were very positive. Do you get the same response in the paleontological community? Are there these arguments about popularizing the, uh, the mission? of, 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 of uh, paleontology and taking it away from that very sort of rigorous academic pursuit. Yeah, and, and to follow up on, on what you were saying, like a lot of the criticisms towards Indiana Jones were depicting him as, you know, a quote-unquote looter or grave robber. Right. You know, not doing a lot of science, you know, maybe dealing in stolen artifacts. Of course. Like but actually, if you go back to the 30s, that was the norm, actually, for archaeologists. Yes. You know, the field has changed over time. Um, and the same thing, you know, has happened in paleontology. One of the advantages that archaeologists have over paleontologists is, you know, people are like, well, you know, our country's in debt. Why should we fund archaeology? Well, you know, because it teaches us about where we came from. It's a little bit harder when you go back to dinosaurs. Right. You know, dinosaurs have, they have that enigma of being these cool, fantastic beasts that aren't around today. Right. But why should people care? But one of the things, you know, that Jurassic Park has actually helped us with is paleontologists are time travelers. We take the rocks and all the things in the rocks and weave together a story of what it was like 200 million years ago, 150 million years ago, 60 million years ago. Right. And understanding how the world changed over those spans of time, and it changed multiple times. Like right here in Utah, if I go to 270 million years ago, I'm underwater. If I go to 250, it's a desert. 230, I'm underwater again. 200, now it's a forest. You know, rapid changes over and over and over. And 
if you look at how the communities of animals, and we don't just look at dinosaurs, we look at the plants. We look at the little creatures that are running around in the world of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs don't live in a vacuum. You know, T-Rex needs herbivorous dinosaurs to eat, which need plants to eat, which need sunlight, which need decomposers to get rid of the waste. It's really an entire world that we're trying to reconstruct. And understanding how those worlds change is something that actually can tell us about how our world is changing. In a lot of ways, our world today is changing in ways that really haven't happened since the Mesozoic. I mean, we're actually going from an ice house world, certainly to a hot house world that we haven't experienced in a long time. So it should be interesting to see how we respond. In addition, humans are putting so many pressures on different species out there. We're actually, you know, we've divided time up into major extinctions. The last major extinction was at the end of the time of the dinosaurs. And we are actually approaching that level of extinction today uh, to a combination of climate change and man-made um, pressures that are being put on animals. And I think you're, you're right about that, certainly. I mean, uh, and, and of course, you know, you look at the cyclicity of, psych, of climatic change, and like you say, you know, there is a relevance looking at how climate changed and, and passed from dry to warm to, uh, to cool, cool, and the acceleration of all these cycles and, and, and the periodicity of all of this because of the human impact. But I, what, what I was getting at before is, is how, how do, do your colleagues respond to these movies? Um, how, what do they see? Do they see a benefit to well, it? Well, certainly they, are, if you ask any paleontologist, certainly if you ask any paleontologist what they think of Jurassic World, the first thing that they will say to you is there were no feathers. So okay. one of the things that have really been revolutionized in the world of paleontology since the first Jurassic Park movie came out is now we know for sure that dinosaurs like Velociraptor, dinosaurs like Gallimimus, they uh-huh. have feathers. And many other dinosaurs had feathers too, including some uh, of the ancestors to the Ceratopsians. So the fact that there weren't feathers on animals that we absolutely know had feathers, uh, that's a problem. And I understand what the filmmakers were doing. They were trying to stick to the continuity of the movie. One of the other problems with Velociraptor is Velociraptor has a skull that's about six inches long. It's the biggest Velociraptor out there. So real Velociraptors, you know, if you had a good pair of work boots, you should not be afraid of these animals. Uh But the animals depicted in Jurassic Park are scaled up to be much larger and much ferocious. Um, When the first movie came out, there was no known raptor dinosaur that looked like that. Actually, later that year, um, we actually found dinosaurs here in Utah that were raptor dinosaurs and the size of the animals in Jurassic Park. That actual, the name of that animal is Utah raptor. So now we know that there were animals that big but once again, would have had feathers. So there's lots of problems with velociraptors. In the movie, they're smiling and expressing their lips, you know, back and forth in some of the shots. Right. And, you know, the way that we smile and the way that we move our lips is through our facial muscles. And facial muscles are something that crocodiles, dinosaurs, and birds 
never evolved. So you don't see a smiling dinosaur or dinosaurs moving their lips in that way. And so that was just dramatic license that they took on that. Yeah, I'm sure the scene looked a little dead with the dinosaur just standing there looking just like standing, dinosaur, Yeah, exactly, so. and that's one of the things <laughs> that, that... What about, you know, one of, one of the really fascinating elements of the entire dinosaur and paleontological um, series of investigations generally is the entire question of the extinctions and the causality, which uh, I suspect at this point is widely accepted that it was a major, major clima- uh, uh, climatic cataclysm uh, associated with the, uh, the meteors and the asteroid. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how well documented the 65 million year uh, event is? Yeah, well, we've actually well beyond we have very well documented the fact that a big giant meteor from space hit the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico almost at 90 degrees we're talking a 15 kilometer uh, wide uh, impactor and it would be the equivalent of like 10 times the entire nuclear arsenal of the world going off at once Right. so when this hit You had a fireball that reached into Alberta. So if you put a circle from Mexico to Alberta, that was the extent of the fireball in in which everything was just scorched to nothing. And then, of course, there are fires all over the place, all over. Everything you throw up into the atmosphere is going to make a nuclear winter scenario. Um, And certainly that killed the ecosystem, killed the plants, which killed the herbivores, which killed the carnivores. Very, very few things made it through. In the ocean, you know, many types of sea reptiles went extinct. Um, some fish, some sharks made it through. You know, some of the mollusk family, you know, entire groups of mollusks went extinct. Um, entire groups of plants went extinct on Earth. And just a few things, and often things that are generalist, survive. Things like turtles, uh, things like alligators and crocodiles, things like small birds and small mammals. And that was the founder population, and that's why we're here talking about it today, because it gave ecospace for mammals to go crazy. I mean, there were proto-primates back then uh, that made it through and actually made it, you know, into today, so now we're talking about it. One of the interesting things about this extinction event At the same time, climate is changing. At the same time, diversity is changing. So, you know, did these things have an effect? Absolutely. So it's it's kind of your murder on the Orient Express. There's multiple different reasons the dinosaurs have been extinct. But when that space rock hit, that was the death knell. And that caused the extinction of the animals that we think of as dinosaurs. A few lucky mammals survived, and we took over the world. I mean, you could argue that birds took over the world as well, but not in the niches that dinosaurs had had occupied before. So birds are very successful. They're actually more successful than mammals in number of species and diversity. But when you talk about, you know, the most the largest mammal that ever lived is the blue whale. You know, and, and during the time between the dinosaurs and now we had the largest land mammal in, in Dracotherium from India. You know, probably about four elephants in size. So 
lots of diversity in mammals, and this diversity could only have happened if we had the niches available in the ecosystems in which to expand into. Ten million years after the extinction event that wiped out the mega dinosaurs is the first time when we get, like, horse-sized mammals. So mammals just start out small, and slowly they get bigger, and they diversify into the groups that we know and love today. Right. Ten million years after the extinction would have been the first time that you really recognized an ecosystem when comparing it today. You know, there were rhino-like things, there were horse-like things, there were cat-like things, birds that right. you would have recognized. So we will we will get back. Why we look at and discuss, uh, I'm sorry, we have to take a break, uh, but we will get back and resume our very fascinating discussion on dinosaur extinctions as well as the ramifications of the newly released Jurassic Park film after these words. Don't go away, we'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, The Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're 
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today on Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology is uh, paleontologist Dr. Mark Lowen of the University of Utah. And we are discussing uh, archaeology, paleontology, and the various myths versus the realities associated with each of the disciplines individually and taken together. Uh, earlier in the program, we discussed the fascination that, that uh, a lot of the public has with uh, dinosaurs and the very often mistaken assumption that dinosaurs and evolved humans, if you will, were contemporaneous. Of course, that's, that's an idea that, that I, I think even most lay people now know is uh, bogus and, and not accurate. But one of the uh, very interesting topics that we have just started discussing with Mark Lowen is the entire question of the dinosaur extinction and uh, the amount of detail that now exists on those reconstructions is uh, overwhelming and very, very compelling. And we were talking about, in addition to the cataclysmic meteoric event, the zonation, the rezonation of landscapes and environments uh, that were affected by this cataclysmic event, and that over the long term, the ability of the various species to adapt to the changes in the environments that were generated by the cataclysmic event ultimately realigned uh, all living life forms. Um, uh, Mark, why don't you talk a little bit about that and how the, uh, the, the Earth's landscape was totally reconfigured as a result of that event and what that meant for the dinosaurs and, and for the uh, resumption of life. One of the interesting things is when we think about the animals that populate an ecosystem, they actually modify those ecosystems. So life actually changes, you know, the physical environments around it. This is especially true in the oceans. So if we think about the oceans that were present in the Mesozoic, they had different creatures. You know, so the oceans, you know, they were mm-hmm. dominated by mollusks, but these mollusks were actually a lot like the animals that we call uh, the chambered nautilus today. So it's actually a shell that looks like a snail with a squid-like animal coming out of it. So ammonites and blemnites, different groups of mollusks, those were the major animals in the ocean. In addition, um, during the time of the dinosaurs, the bony fish that we know and like to eat today um, had a huge radiation, which actually led to reptiles entering the water to be aquatic. Again, so we have something like the Komodo dragon becoming mosasaurs. So mosasaurs are actually varanid lizards that are aquatic. And this is one of the animals that we saw in Jurassic World coming out of the water to eat the shark. These animals all went extinct. So things that look like the Loch Ness Monster, the plesiosaurs, the pliosaurs, the ichthyosaurs that look a lot like dolphins, the mosasaurs. You know, the coral reefs were different in the Mesozoic. And so 
once you wiped out the plankton in the ocean by blocking out the sunlight in your nuclear winter scenario um, in which the asteroid hit, we can actually look immediately above the layers in which the asteroid hit and see the extinction of the plankton, the phytoplankton, the zooplankton. So all these things go extinct. That kills the food chain. It killed the corals. And what actually recovered was the communities in the oceans that we see today. So now we have Storactinian corals. We have clam and gastropod-dominated uh, ecosystems in the coral reefs. So our coral is different, our mollusk fauna is different, and our fish fauna is different. And now mammals have come back into the ocean to take over some of the niches that previously were held by reptiles in the Mesozoic. So it's not just effects on land, it's effects in the water that change over time. So our oceans, our coral reefs today, really owe back to that extinction event at 65 million years um, yeah, I, I think that that's really one of the major points that is sort of uh, really has it, – it's the long-term view. It's the long-term view of the cataclysmic event and its ramifications uh, that are still translating them and playing themselves out even today. So along those lines, uh, one of the uh, planned points that I wanted to talk to you was – the physical sciences of paleontology and archaeology, what do you feel they have to teach each other? And uh, where do we have similarities in methods and in, in lessons between the two uh, distinct but somehow related disciplines? I'm a researcher at the Natural History Museum of Utah, and we have a very vibrant um, anthropology department that does a lot of archaeology. Um, a lot of it based on Native American, um, early, early Native American finds uh, here in Utah. And one of the interesting things, when a geologist or a paleontologist talks about stratigraphy, we're talking about a thousand meters. When an archaeologist talks about stratigraphy, we're maybe talking about a half a meter. Uh, or half, a me half a meter uh, or a hundred centimeters. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Bouncing the word stratigraphy back and forth between the archaeologists and paleontologists is hilarious. And then um, in the excavation methods. You know, so one of the things that archaeologists do is they'll take a random and excavate spots along that random grid. Uh, paleontologists will just go into the hill and quit going when they find everything. So there's not a lot of that random random digging to get a representative sample. One of the reasons is, you know, many archaeological sites are larger than paleontological sites. The way we look for dinosaurs is we look for, first of all, rocks that are the right age. Second of all, we look for rocks that are terrestrial. You know, ocean rocks sometimes have dinosaurs in them, but generally they're not as productive. So we'll look right. for rocks that were laid down by rivers and streams and lakes. And then we'll actually walk across the surface looking for little chunks of bone. One of the things that you can do is you can actually take the bone and put your tongue on it, and the bone will stick to your tongue. Because it's porous from the different, um, from the microtopology of the bone right. and the way it permineralizes. 
and then we'll look for where that bone is coming out, and then we'll dig in and see what we can find. But pretty much what we do is we try to take as big of a chunk of earth as we can and not really uncover the bone until we're back in the lab. So we'll cover it with burlap dipped in plaster of Paris and make a plaster cast around the bone and rock and then bring it back to the lab. And most of the work is done in the lab with micro jackhammers and needles on tiny jackhammers and things like that. And if I'm not mistaken, that strategy has been used by paleontologists for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. Even back into the 1870s here in the United States. That's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we're we're really not doing anything different um, than people were doing 150 years ago. If it works, I guess don't don't break it. If it if it ain't broke, don't the, fix it. Kind of a mentality. The biggest right. difference is most of our work is done on public land, and right. these days you can't get permission to use dynamite as an excavation tool in the way that they did back then. Right. So we we, we use concrete saws uh, to excavate and jackhammers, and that that's a lot of our big tools that we use today. Well, along those lines, has your ability to hone in on likely paleontological sites, has that increased over the course of time? I and mean, we with a, a sort of a, a bird's-eye view of the uh, site distribution maps of primary dinosaur sites, do you starting to get a picture of where preservation and discovery contexts are more, more likely to be found in certain places than in others? Yeah, and one of the tools that we have today is Google Earth. Of course. So, one of the things that for a paleontologist, we need dirt outcrops. You know, trees, I mean, as much as I love vegetation, a paleontologist hates vegetation. Yes. Because the roots from the trees churn up the soil, tear up the bones, and actually digest the bones. Many times the roots will go for the minerals in the bone preferentially. And so trees are bad for, for fossils. So actually finding those outcrops that don't have trees is something we can do on Google Earth. In addition, we've learned what kind of paleoenvironments that leave behind certain kinds of sediments are more likely to preserve certain kinds of fossils. If we want to find feathers, we have to go to lake deposits. So very, very fine-grained deposits actually preserve the feathers in them. So there are certain places where we know we're going to find feathers, certain places where we know we're not going to find them. Some places will actually, you know, depending on how the streams work and how the deposition works, skeletons will be torn apart. And in other places, skeletons will be preserved. Generally, preservation is correlated with rapid burial. So we tend to look for places that are buried quickly in order to find the best articulated specimens. But it, in, in that sense, together. but in that sense, uh, archaeology doesn't vary that much from paleontology, especially when it comes to looking at the remains of early hominids, of uh, evolutionary forms. Uh, we still start to make that connection between good preservation context and good subsistence context. In other words, landscape relations that have. Uh, even ancient sources of water, like you're saying, lakesides, those are the type of landscapes in which you will find uh, some of the best evidence for early humans, uh, especially in the form of postcranial 
uh, discoveries. So I think in that sense, uh, there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, and, and actually, paleontologists work right alongside uh, the paleoanthropologists. Yes, I've been to Lake Turkana, and I've been to the site for Turkana Boy. And, uh-huh. you know, it was actually found by a paleontologist looking for mammal fossils, you know, along with the team. Um, the biggest difference between paleoanthropology and dinosaur paleontology is there's probably more scientists than specimens in paleoanthropology, and we we have the luxury of having many more specimens than scientists in dinosaur paleontology. Now, that's a distinction that I had no idea about. Is that true? <laughs> uh, pretty close. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking early hominids, there are more people that work on them than there are specimens. So let me ask you, is, are there many good training programs for paleontology? I mean, are there, uh, and, and let's talk about that in a, for a minute. I mean, what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, work do paleontologists do in addition to uh, pure science exploration? Are there any more applied fields for paleontology or, or not? Because in archaeology, there's obviously an industry for it because of the law and yeah. compliance, and I assume that there's also something for paleontology along those lines. Why don't you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so, so most, most paleontologists have either a background in biology or geology. And then, um, you know, from, from one of those two disciplines, they will specialize in some aspect. Um, now, many paleontologists go on to teach anatomy at medical schools. Um, uh-huh. So there, there are actually a large amount of medical anatomists who are paleontologists. It's just, you know, if you know one vertebrate skeleton in detail or one vertebrate system in detail, you can translate that to another. I mean, one of the things that a lot of people forget is humans are animals, too. And so, you know, all the things that led up to our evolution are the same things that led up to other groups' evolutions. So there's a lot of similarities in homologies. So that's one field. There are also more and more laws being passed, especially California, that requires mitigation uh, for any kind of project that disrupts the earth in a place that has fossils. Uh, Utah's the same way. So some people work in that industry, and then some people work um, teaching high school, teaching university, and then there's work in museums. And then rarely uh, paleontologists actually get hired by the oil industry because often, you know, a paleontologist is first a good sedimentologist and stratigrapher. Um, so actually one of my recent students is now working with an oil company in Houston. Well, that's, that would seem so, like a very logical fit. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up our discussion I want to thank my guest, Dr. Mark Lowen of the University of Utah for enlightening us on some of the similarities and differences between archaeologists and paleontologists and the sciences that they uh, expand upon and that they participate in and the discoveries that they make. Thanks a lot, Mark. We appreciate your time and effort and good luck going forward. My pleasure. Appreciate it.
And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein for Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.